Question for you all. Raise your hand if you've ever put together a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. Congratulations. Something to be proud of. I've contributed to a couple of them. I haven't done any on my own. Um, I didn't do them growing up, but when I got married, it became something that I did with my wife's family. Can I tell you how I feel about 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzles? Like, whatever. <laughs> I don't get too excited about them. There's, there's this little sense of accomplishment that I feel like when it's all done, you can stand back and look at it. But now imagine something with me. Imagine that you're just about to finish a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. And you take that last piece and you put it into place and you stand back to observe your work. And as you do that, what you realize is that what you just put together was actually just one small jigsaw puzzle piece of an entirely greater jigsaw puzzle that has a thousand more pieces, each piece having a thousand pieces. You, you, you get that picture in your mind? Like, I would quit. I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm done with that. But regardless of how you or I feel about that scenario, that's actually the picture that I want in your minds this morning as we work through our content, okay? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through the content in three big sections this morning. And the first section I'll call the piece of the puzzle, right? This is where we're going to focus primarily on the events in our passage in Genesis 21. We want to understand what God is doing specifically with Abraham and Sarah in the birth of their son. And then what we'll do is we'll move into what I'll call the picture of the puzzle. And this is where we're going to see how that one little piece fits into the bigger picture, how our passage actually fits into the big picture of all of Scripture. And then as we understand this, we'll spend some time working through the purpose of the puzzle. In other words, why does this all matter in the first place? Okay? And so we'll start with this piece of the puzzle. Now, Genesis 21, it, it feels like everything's finally coming together. Things are starting to make sense. God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, it's finally fulfilled. It, look what the text says. It says, the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Up until this point, this is probably the most defining moment in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. It's the culmination of what we've been studying since Genesis 12 when God first called Abraham out of the land of Ur and promised to make him into a great nation. When we continue reading through Genesis, God actually clarifies this promise that he made to Abraham on a couple different occasions. For example, Genesis 15, he says, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Your offspring will be that numerous. And we read that Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. But at the same time, both Abram and Sarai, his wife, they, they wavered in this unbelief. They, they considered God's promise they looked at their own situation and they thought, well, if our offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, step one would be a baby. And it doesn't look like that's happening. 
And so Sarai suggests that Abraham sleeps with Hagar, and he does. She becomes pregnant. She gives birth to Ishmael. And for a time, Abram and Sarai, they think, well, maybe this is what God meant. Maybe the promise is actually going to be fulfilled through this son, Ishmael. But then God comes to Abraham in Genesis 17, and he says this, As for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can a ninety-year-old woman give birth? And so Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, No. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders. I will make him into a great nation, but I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. This was God's promise to Abraham. And there's three things that we need to see about the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. Number one, we need to see that God did what he said he would do. He told Abraham that his wife Sarah would give birth to his son. That's exactly what happened. Number two, we need to see that God did what he said he would do when he said he would do it. It was a year later, just as God had said, when Abraham and Sarah first heard the cry of their baby boy. And number three, God did what he said he would do when he said he would do it to and through whom he said he would do it. This promise was to Abraham and that did not change. And his promise was that the promised son would come from Sarah. That did not change. God does not change his mind. And so when we consider the what, when, and through whom of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, there's one attribute of God that I believe he wanted Abraham and Sarah to see, and it is the attribute of God that we must also come to recognize and believe ourselves, and it is that God is perfectly, unwaveringly, unimaginably faithful. God is perfectly, unwaveringly, unimaginably faithful. He is faithful to do what he says he will do. His will is perfect, and there is nothing and no one that can thwart that. He's faithful to do what he says he will do when he says he will do it. His timing is perfect. God is sovereign over all of time, and he is faithful to use who he says he will use. I mean, consider all of the reasons that God would have had to change his mind with Abraham and Sarah, right? When I read about Abraham and Sarah in Hebrews 11, I think, Lord, help me be more like Abraham and Sarah. But then when I read about their lives in Genesis, I think, Lord, help me to not be like Abraham and Sarah. We could work back through the last eight chapters that we've studied and find reason after reason for God to pivot and find some other couple to use to fulfill his promise. But that's not what God did. And you know why? Because he wanted to prove that he was perfectly, unwaveringly, unimaginably 
faithful. His plan would not be disrupted by the mistakes of his people or their attempts to take matters into their own hands. See, God was perfectly faithful to Abraham and Sarah, and they responded to his faithfulness. In the next couple of verses in our passage, it shows us how they responded. Verse 4, it says, When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham and Sarah, Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. So what's Abraham's response to God's faithfulness? His response is obedience. He named his son Isaac because that's what God told him to do. He circumcised him on the eighth day because that's what God told him to do back in Genesis 17. How did Sarah respond? Sarah responded to God's faithfulness with laughter. This time it was not a laughter of unbelief like it was earlier, but this was a laughter, I think, of joy and wonder that God actually fulfilled his promise to them. You know, there's an interesting thread we don't have a ton of time to get into this morning, but it's this thread of laughter, right? The name Isaac actually means laughter. God's communicating something about the nature of laughter through asking Abraham and Sarah to name their son Isaac. See, laughter began with this expression of unbelief from both Sarah and Abraham when the Lord said that they would have a son. Here, Sarah's laughter, again, it's an it's expression of two things, I think, really genuine joy and wonder, but also laughter at the ridiculousness of a 90-year-old woman giving birth. I mean, I, I think if your grandma called you and said that she was about to have a baby, most of us would probably laugh. It's a little bit ridiculous. But then we move into next week. In our passage next week, we'll see a different type of laughter. It's this laughter of mockery. And so again, there's, there's this thread to, to be woven in through this passage that we're not going to dive into too much. But what I do want us to see is that like Abraham and Sarah, when we see that God is completely faithful, it should move us. It should move us to respond in both obedience and joy. That's a similarity I think we can draw from this passage to our lives today. But there's also a huge difference that we need to point out between Abraham and Sarah and then us. And the difference is one of perspective. See, I think Abraham and Sarah saw the fulfillment of God's promise to them through their own limited perspective. They saw Isaac as the promise given and fulfilled specifically and exclusively to them. That is not the perspective that we are limited to when we look at the fulfillment of God's promise to them. See, when we zoom in on Genesis 12 and 21, we look at that little puzzle piece, it seems like that puzzle, it's now complete, right? This promised child has finally arrived. But when we zoom out and we see this point of Scripture in context of the rest of Scripture, we see that this puzzle that was seemingly just finished is just one piece of a much bigger puzzle. And this bigger puzzle demonstrates even more of God's perfect, unwavering, unimaginable faithfulness. And so what I think is helpful for us to do is to zoom out and take a look at how this passage fits in with the greater picture of all of Scripture. 
I want to start by bringing you all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything in them. He created the first man and the first woman. He placed them in the Garden of Eden. And he says, Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. As image bearers of God, his people were to fill the earth with more image bearers. And then we fast forward to Genesis 3 and sin enters the world and it corrupts the human heart. And after the fall, humans multiplied over the face of the earth, but God looked down and he saw that every inclination of the human heart was nothing but evil all the time. And he promised judgment. And he poured out, he poured out his judgment on his creation through a worldwide flood. And everything and everyone in the world was destroyed through this flood except for Noah and his family. So he rescues Noah and his family and they come out of the ark and God says this to Noah and his family. He says, but you be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. It's the same command that God had for Adam and Eve. God's purpose for humanity was unchanged. They were to fill the earth with more image bearers. God was going to be known, to be glorified among the earth. That was the intended purpose of his creation with humans. We jump forward a little bit to Genesis 11. If you want to flip back with me to Genesis 11, feel free. Here's what we read. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, Let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Wait a second. Wasn't that God's purpose? See, what we see here in Genesis 11 is a complete rejection of God's purposes for humanity. They were to spread out over the earth and make God's name known. Instead, they stayed. They came together in one place and they made a name for themselves. And so God confused their languages and he scattered them over the face of the earth, not just as forced obedience, but as judgment. But God's purposes for humanity were still unchanged. God still intended for his name to be glorified throughout the earth. The means, though, for how this was, would happen, it's no longer through scattering. It's through gathering. See, God now intends to make himself known by gathering his people back to himself. And it's this pursuit of gathering a people back for himself that begins with a promise. And this is where we come to the, our little puzzle piece that we started with. It's a promise that we have first in Genesis 12, where God calls Abram and he says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And this promise, the fulfillment of this promise would begin with a baby born in a humanly impossible way, despite the wandering, 
stumbling faithlessness of Abraham and Sarah. He's beginning to gather his people back to himself. And if we continue studying Genesis, then we begin to collect and connect a number of other puzzle pieces. We read how this baby Isaac would grow up and father Jacob, and he fathered 12 sons who eventually grew into the 12 tribes of Israel, God's nation. See, Isaac, it's not the totality of God's promise to Abraham. It's not even close. It's just the first step towards fulfilling a much more grand promise for all of creation. And so it's through Isaac's lineage then that we have the nation of Israel. Israel grows into a nation in the land of Egypt. They eventually become enslaved to Pharaoh, but God is faithful and he delivers them. He raises up Moses to free his people. And through this exodus, through the Red Sea, what we see is God is faithful to deliver his people. And in the wilderness then, Moses receives the law and gives the law to the people. And so through the law, we see that God is faithful to direct his people. And then eventually, God leads his people into the land of Canaan, the promised land. He instructs them to construct a tabernacle for their worship. And it's in this tabernacle, this place where God promises he will dwell with his people. God is faithful to deliver, direct, and dwell with his people. We see this as we work through the rest of of Genesis into Exodus and Leviticus. We see that God is faithful to deliver, direct, and dwell with his people. And it's not just for his people. It's not just so that Israel would be blessed, but he is faithful to his people so that all nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the promise that he gave to Abraham. It's this blessing to all nations that comes in the form of being gathered back to God as the source of all goodness in life. God intends to fulfill this promise through Abraham and through the nation of Israel. You know, like Abraham, Israel had this long list of mistakes. God could have chosen to pivot, but he didn't. God raised up judges, but Israel demanded a king. So God raised up kings, and the overwhelming majority of these kings were evil, and they led Israel astray. One of those kings is King David, who becomes a key player in the biblical narrative, as we know. But Israel continued to rebel against the Lord, and they rebelled so strongly that he raised up prophets to warn them of this coming exile, which eventually happened. Eventually, Israel rejected God so severely that God allowed them to be overtaken by the Babylonians for seven years, or 70 years. In a way, God's, God's people, they were scattered once again as an act of judgment. We, we see this in the nation of Israel, and we, we wonder, how in the world could God use a nation like Israel, a, a people who are so stuck in their ways, that even after God is delivering, directing, and dwelling among them, they still pursue their own agendas. How could God use Israel as a means of gathering the nations back to himself? But remember, God is perfectly, unwaveringly, unimaginably faithful, and he promised he would. In Psalm 147, too, it says, the Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people, and he did gather his people back. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke of a Messiah that would be born to them. See, God promised 
Abraham that there would be a son born to him through a 90-year-old woman. And there was great anticipation around this promised baby boy that would come in a humanly impossible way. And God promised Israel that there would be a baby boy born to them through a teenage virgin. And there was great anticipation around this promised baby boy that would come in a humanly impossible way. See, in God's perfect faithfulness, as he was promising Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, he knew he was setting the stage for another miraculous birth to take place. And it was a birth that Abraham and Sarah would know nothing of. This boy, Jesus, was the perfect son of God. And for his 30 plus years on life, there was not one fault that could be found in Jesus. He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. Yet Jesus suffered, bled, and died on the cross so that by putting our faith and trust in him, you and I could be forgiven. We could be removed from underneath the weight of God's wrath that was actually poured out on Christ. Why did he do this? It's because God is faithful to deliver, direct, and dwell among his people and to gather his people back to himself. It is through Christ that he has been able to faithfully fulfill this. And this time, this promise to do that, it's not just to the nation of Israel, but it is to all nations. The promise to be delivered, to be directed, and to, to, for God to dwell among us, it is for those of us who are now in Christ. And if you know Christ, God has delivered you. He does direct you, and he dwells among you. If you are in Christ, you are heirs of the same promise that was to Abraham. Specifically, God's promise that you would be part of this great nation, He has gathered you back to himself. He has adopted you into his family and made you part of his church. And you are now a part of God's plan in gathering the nations back to himself. When I say part of this great nation, I mean the nation of the church. God's gathered people. It was the plan for this that he initiated all the way back in Genesis 12. This is where we currently are in the puzzle. The puzzle is not yet complete. It's getting closer, though. The puzzle is getting closer. And Scripture has given us a picture of what it will look like when it is finally complete. If you want to flip to Revelation 7 with me, feel free. The picture of the completed puzzle, starting in verse 9. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who is seated on the throne and to the lamb all the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures they fell face down before the throne and worshiped god saying amen Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. 
Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The ones seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the hope of all nations. This is our hope in Christ. That one day we will be among a host of saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation, free from pain and sorrow, praising our Lord. And what we need to see is that we do not arrive there without the birth of Isaac. We do not arrive at Genesis or at Revelation 7 apart from the perfect, unwavering, unimaginable faithfulness of God. And this brings us to our third point this morning. It's the purpose of it all. Why, why has God allowed us to see this? Why has he so graciously connected all the dots for us and helped us to see this overarching purpose of humanity that we might dwell with him for all of eternity? Why has he not left us in the dark? It's because he wants us to know that without question, God is faithful. Do you believe God is faithful? Do you, do you believe God is faithful to you? Not just faithful in general. Do you believe God is actually faithful to you? Maybe asked a different way. Do your decisions, your attitudes, and your priorities demonstrate that you believe God is perfectly, unwaveringly, unimaginably faithful to you? How might you go about answering that question or discerning what your answer to that question actually is? I think it's helpful to start with what it means for God to be faithful. Right? We see in our passage that God did what he promised. He did it when he promised. He did it to and through whom he promised. So in other words, what it means for God to be faithful is that God comes through on absolutely every single word of his promise. And so if God's faithfulness is demonstrated through the fulfillment of his promise, the next question we need to answer then is, well, what has he promised? What are, what are the promises of God? If you jump on Google and you just type in God's promises, hit search, you'll find a lot of things. 50 promises to claim for your life. Seven best promises to claim this week. 31 promises for the month. 
And all of them, they're, they're connected to a, a scripture reference. There's a Bible verse said, look, the promise is right here. See, God promises this. Boom, Bible reference. And we think, okay, here's my laundry list of promises from God. And he has promised us many, many things, hasn't he? God has promised us love, acceptance, and belonging, and purpose, and peace, and rest for our souls. God has promised us joy, assurance, protection, provision, satisfaction. And see, if God has promised us all of these things, which he has, and God is perfectly, unwaveringly, unimaginably faithful, and he is, then here's the question. Why does the lived experience of many believers lack the very things God has promised? If these are what God has promised, and God is faithful, why, as a believer, does my experience not line up with that? Why do many believers walk around with a craving for acceptance and belonging? Or the spirit of restlessness and discontentment, or with doubt and confusion, anxiety, fear, a lack of joy? I think there's probably another, a, a number of ways we can answer that question, but here's one. That Lord willing is helpful. We are expecting the right things from God, but we are looking for them in the wrong place. See, we know God's promises, and we claim God's promises, and then what we do is we wait for a change in our circumstances as an indication of the fulfillment of God's promises. Right? So if God promises joy, but I'm not experiencing joy, then something about my circumstance is going to change, right? Or if God promises peace, but I'm walking in anxiety, then the promise that... The promise for peace, it must mean that whatever circumstance is creating this anxiety in my soul must change. Or if God promises satisfaction, but I feel like I'm discontent and I walk around thinking I don't have what I need, then something in my circumstances is going to change. And then when they don't change, our trust in God's perfect faithfulness begins to diminish. It begins to weaken but our felt need for the things that God has supposedly promised stays strong. See, our souls know we need the very things that God has promised. But when it doesn't seem like we can trust that God is going to come through, through a change of circumstance, then the only option we have in order to obtain what we think is the promise is to take matters into our own hands and force a change of our circumstances. See, isn't this exactly what Abraham and Sarah did? Right? When Abraham moved down to Egypt because of the famine, when Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife twice, when Abraham slept with Hagar to try to force the fulfillment of God's promise. See, we've got to understand that, it's, that God's promises are not fulfilled in 
the circumstances. If God's promises were fulfilled in our circumstances, I don't think we could call God faithful. And I, I say that because our circumstances are incapable of producing what it is God has promised us. There is no circumstance in my life that can actually produce the joy that God has promised to me in his word. I will not find that in my circumstances. Nothing in life is going to produce the peace that God has promised to me in his word. I will not find that in my circumstances. And so if God's promises are not fulfilled in our circumstances, where are they fulfilled? They are fulfilled in Christ. In Christ. See, God is perfectly, unwaveringly, unimaginably faithful because he has promised us himself first and foremost. He has promised us himself, not in just a merely transactional sense, but he has promised us himself relationally. God has given us himself. Now, when I married Dana, I promised that I would provide for her. And I promised that I would take care of her. And I, I promised that I would be faithful to her as long as I live. So let's just say that I marry her and then I buy her a house and make sure she always has enough money in the bank to put food on the table. And when she's sick, she can let me know she's sick and I can go to the pharmacy, I can pick up the medicine, make sure she has that. I don't ever pursue another woman but I live in my studio apartment downstairs or downtown. She calls me if she needs something and I'll take care of it. Like, hey, the garbage disposal is broken. Oh, I, I married you. I promised I would take care of that. I'll come, I'll come take care of that. Or like, hey, I need a vacation. Oh, I, I married you. I'll, I'll go ahead and get you a VRBO. Have fun. Like, is that what I promised her when I married her? Not even close. I promised my wife me. I promised myself to her. And with me comes everything else. Imperfectly, obviously. But with me comes everything else. See, apart from a deep and meaningful relationship, everything else seems so incomplete. Romans 8.32, it says this, He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? See, God's promises are fulfilled to us in Christ. But the tangible experience of God's faithfulness and the deep conviction of his faithfulness that compels us to joyful worship and obedience is impossible apart from a deep, intimate relationship with him. No matter what God does for us, we will be left wanting if he is not with us. See, this has been God's promise from the beginning. It is to gather us back to himself by delivering us and directing us so that he might dwell with us. God has, prom has proven his faithfulness to us by promising himself to us in Christ. And as we walk in close, intimate fellowship with Christ, we will experience all that God has promised to us, and we will see God as perfectly, 
unwaveringly, unimaginably faithful. See, I think this is the purpose of the puzzle piece of Genesis 21, 1 through 7. I think this is the purpose of the entire picture that Scripture paints for us. It is a picture of God's perfect faithfulness. And so what is our response to this picture of faithfulness? How do we respond then to the faithfulness of God? When you look at our passage, we see that Abraham obeyed, right? I I would say obedience is a really good response when we see the faithfulness of God clearly. We see that Sarah laughed with joy. I would say rejoicing is a wonderfully perfect response when we understand God's perfect faithfulness. But I also think that when we understand God's faithfulness is demonstrated through the fact that he gave us himself first and foremost, our first response as believers must be to draw near to God. We respond to the faithfulness of God by drawing near to him. So let me ask you, are you daily, are you daily drawing near to God? When you read your Bible, is it simply for the purpose of study or just to check the box? No, God is faithful. Draw near to him in his word. When you pray, is it just a conscious cleanser? No, God is faithful. Draw near to him in prayer. God has not promised us a temporary change of circumstances that enables us to feel better about our lives for a moment. God has promised us himself, and so we draw near to him. This morning, as we partake in the Lord's Supper together, what I want us to do is I want us to camp on the faithfulness of God. I want us to consider the faithfulness of God, what it means for God to have promised us himself and to come through on that promise perfectly. I want you to consider God's perfect, unwavering, unimaginable faithfulness and what it actually cost him to be faithful. Joy and peace and provision and protection and assurance and satisfaction, all of it, It is ours forever because Christ is ours forever.